everyone. This is the Crime Cafe, your podcasting source of great crime, suspense, and thriller writing. I'm your host, Debbie Mack. Before I bring on my guest, I'll just remind you that the Crime Cafe has two ebooks for sale the nine book box set and the short story anthology. You can find the buy links for both on my website, debbiemack.com, under the Crime Cafe link. You can also get a free copy of either book if you become a Patreon supporter. You'll get that and much more if you support the podcast on Patreon, along with our eternal gratitude for doing so. But first, let me put in a good word for Blueberry Podcasting. I'm a Blueberry affiliate, but that's not the only reason I'm telling you this. I've been using Blueberry Podcasting as my hosting service for my podcast for years, and it's one of the best decisions I ever made. They give great customer service, you're in complete control of your own podcast, you can run it from your own website, and it just takes a lot of the work out of podcasting for me. I find for that reason that it's a company that I can get behind 100% and say, you should try this. Try Blueberry. It doesn't require a long-term contract, and it's just a great company, period. And it also has free technical support by email, video, and phone so you can get a human being there. Isn't that nice? Hi, everyone. Um, Today, I'm pleased to have with me as my guest, a best-selling author and journalist. I love journalists, by the way, Um, since I was a journalism major. Um, His latest- Yes, I was. (laughs) Me too. All right, all right. Uh, His latest book is a true crime story. It is the latest, right? Uh, called yeah. The Darkest Flare, yeah. a true story of murder, blackmail, and real estate greed in 1970 Los Angeles. Mm. I've read it, and it is quite the bizarre story. Um, he has written several other books, including Strange As It Seems, The Impossible Life of Gordon Zoller, The People's Republic of Chemicals, the international bestseller Smog Town, the lung-burning history of, of pollution in Los Angeles. I love these titles. Anyway, more recently, he released his debut novel, Arroyo, a work of serialized, a work of historical, I'm sorry, fiction, set around the construction of Pasadena's mysterious Colorado Street Bridge, which really intrigued me. I had to look that up. He's also worked as a reporter and written opinion pieces for a variety of major newspapers, including the LA Times, the New York Times, CNN, and several others. It's my pleasure to introduce Chip Jacobs. Hey, Chip, how are you doing today? Hey, Debbie, honored to be here. Thank you so much for having me on. Oh, well, it's my pleasure, believe me. Very happy to have you on. And uh, so tell me, talk about how you ended up writing The Darkest Glare, um, which was written a bit like a thriller with this absolutely psychotic villain in there. Um, How how did you learn about the story and what interested you in writing it? Um, Yeah, I mean, I don't uh, I will never be called a true crime author because I'm not a true crime author. You know, I uh, always... Uh, when I went into journalism, uh, I always tried to avoid getting assigned a crime story or active murder case or whatever, because that just wasn't in my DNA. 
And um, nonetheless, you know, stories will find you. And in the mid 90s, um, I was working at a newspaper uh, competitor to the LA Times, having a blast uh, getting under people's skin. And I developed a, a relationship with a source who uh, just gave me tip after tip after tip. And it, he just had the highest batting average and he was always getting me above the fold on front page stories. And it was fantastic. Um, I, I left journalism to work my first book, a biography, and, but I was still freelancing. And one day, true story, late nineties, walking down Hollywood Boulevard, which, you know, back then and still now kind of looks like a Star Wars bar in terms of characters. <laughs> and, uh, you know, some moments in your life, you know, crystallize. We just passed a homeless guy carrying a banjo and Jerry stops me on the sidewalk. This this is the protagonist of the book, Jerry Snyderman, and says, did I ever tell you, because we developed some trust, that I had a double murderer chasing me? Uh, and he goes, yeah, my ex-wife thinks it killed the old me. And, uh, and I thought... Um, he was just trying to impress me. He was, it was braggadocia. Maybe try, maybe there was a little something there, but you know, almost yanking my chain turned out uh, not only was he uh, being accurate, uh, he was understating how really evil and um, devastating uh, the crime was that he got sucked into in 1979, Los Angeles, which was a very dark period in American history. I don't know if it's as dark as now, but murders were high. We were fighting with each other. America seemed on decline. We we were, um, there's huge gas station lines and stagflation. The murder rate was uh, uh, so scary. Uh, it was fueling, quote unquote, white flight, alarm sales, gun purchases. You know, it was, um, it was almost a battle. And, um, you know, my, uh, source back then was a brilliant space planner uh, dealing with um, uh, trying to grow the business too much because he'd been talked into it by a very debonair partner and they were uh, doing space planning, you know, kind of interior architecture. They were doing really well. They're crushing it. They had a different way of approaching than the stodgy older firms. Uh, but then uh, Jerry's partner, a guy named Richard Kasparov said, I know a way to get rich even quicker. We're going to go into construction. And when you go into construction, you need a, you need two things. You need a contractor's license and you need experience. And boy, did they hire the wrong person. <laughs> yeah. Yes, indeed. That came back to bite them in the ass, huh? Oh, yeah. In a big way. Um, how many people did you interview? And was it difficult to get people to talk to you about what happened? That's a great question. Um, you know, um, without my journalism background, I could not have done this story. Um, I'm, I'm, uh, God is still trying to jackhammer patience into my soul. And this was um, something I learned in this story where you develop a source and it might be years and years and years before they really tell you what you want to know. And you just can't come on to them a thousand miles an hour. So um uh, I did, uh, I probably interviewed 30 people or something like that. You know, some had passed away. Um, uh, there was three or four people that did not want to talk to me. And, mm -hmm. um, I, uh, uh, one person I met one time at a hamburger hamlet in West Los Angeles. And this crime, this murderer, this monster who, 
was a con you know I'll, I'll, i don't want to be spoiler he, he he haunted people at, even after he died and i think there was some fear in these people he's got associates maybe he's going to re reincarnate and track me down you know i interviewed um uh wives and girlfriends and things like that and and they'd be bawling you know when i'd interview them you know and even though i tried to be diplomatic and empathic and all that and sympathetic it, it, it they never got it out of their system um mm. i would say my really big break came when i um reached out to the assistant district attorney that prosecuted the case he was retiring he invited me over to his house and he opened up his garage door and there's all these files he brought home and he goes take your pick and i spent a beautiful delicious and also very dark afternoon going through his stuff because wow. it was dark in the garage and the things i was learning with these files was pretty dark about humanity um i you know traditionally you know as a reporter you go after the documents so i went to downtown la something called the hall of records which is in this dungeon like basement below this like 60s building and you feel like you're in a nuclear bunker going down there you know with kind of shady fluorescent lights and it's serpentine there's not a lot of humans it smells you finally enter this area and you expect there to be mo human moles working there so i finally you know you have your case number i go to the files somebody has gone or numerous people have gone through this box of files and taken stuff out a massive map. And I've, I've faced this before in journalism where somebody doesn't want you to know what's going on. There's only one set of records uh, before, you know, it's digitized and they just swipe them or they put her down their shirt and they walk out like Fawn Hall, you know, drawing around. That's what happened here. You know, there was people that did not want to be have any fingerprints on this story because of guilt, because of terror, because, some, you know, there's something other shady happening. And so it, it was not easy <laughs> filling yeah. in all the blanks of the story. And I felt a little bit like Jurassic Park, you know, where they had a they had to add in DNA here and there. And that's what I would that's what required me to do. But you know, Jerry Snyderman, my my anti-hero, uh, you know, I sat with him for interviews many, many times. Um, so it wasn't always easy. I also um not equivocated, but I vacillated about contacting the trigger man in the story. Because he was in prison, he'd been denied parole because he was considered so dangerous. He he was like a brilliant kid who fell out of a car, hit his head, and he developed two things, epilepsy and psychopathy, when he fell out of this car. And um, I did not want him to know I was necessarily alive because in California's parole system, you don't know if this guy gets out, the internet will make it easy to find me. Maybe he's this old, bitter man, you know, um, so... I, I I wavered and wavered and finally uh, I got news that he died. And even though what he could have told me would have been invaluable, I also breathed a big sigh of relief, you know? Yeah. So did my family because they, can, they weren't that thrilled with me poking my nose into this. I can imagine. Yeah. You know, all of what you're saying is bringing up a question for me now. How, how, what, is, what psychological effect of all of this did all this research have on you? Did you ever feel um, frightened or um, at risk or um, just any lingering effects, almost like a PTSD afterward? Um, that's a good, um, not a lot. I mean, of, I, I work, you know, I, I'm an independent writer and I work from home and I have a big window <laughs> looking onto me. And in this case, uh something really evil happens 
through a window. And it occurred to me, oh my God, you know, the guy could do it once, he could do it twice. But I wasn't really concerned about that as, as much as um, trying to be a student of psychology to understand the effects of this murder spree on the people that were affected. And that's what I saw. I saw PTSD across the board, whether it was somebody that could barely bring themselves to talk about it or mention a name or Jerry. You know, I think Jerry was so deeply scarred by this. Uh, uh, I think actually that the real, the, the, real the, the second tragedy was he was infected by the two men in his life that sent him sideways because he was really a very brilliant guy. You know, he should have been one of those stories of a, of a nerdy kid that got had the crap bullied out of him who became a billionaire. But, you know, he refused to get therapy after all this went down and maybe he didn't want to face the demons through the door and that shortened his life. So that was really sad. And he never saw this book come out. He, you know, uh, he never, never enjoyed it. He never took his victory lap of survival. So that makes me, you know, that made me melancholy, but I'm hoping that from above he's cheering me on. I'd like to think so. Yeah, yeah definitely. I know so. Yeah. Um, how much time did it take you to research and write the book from start to finish? Well, this book has come out in a couple of different forms. I later, The, the Darkest Glare, um, uh, uh, this essence of it had been written in a previous book, but it was too biography-esque, and I wanted to turn more, more true crime. But I would say overall, probably took me like a year and a half or so. You know, I'd work on it, do an interview here or there, go back to something else, you know, like journalists do. So, you know, that, that you know, the actual writing wasn't that hard. Um, it's It was a more difficult story, right? Because it's a very psychological story, you know? And um, part of it, without being a spoiler alert, involved, I mean, there, it's, um, people have asked me to describe the story. And I would say it was kind of like 1979 version of Fargo, the great movie Fargo, one of my favorites ever, Coen Brothers, brilliant, 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 you know, where... Um, it, it's not so much about the gore, it's about the map to the gore and why people put themselves in situations they're going to be vulnerable to the gore, you know, and mm -hmm. read ambition, purposeful naivete. We have hapless killers, you know, um, and, you know, if this was ever turned into a series, I'd like to have one of those like pinball ding, at first attempt miss, ding, second attempt. Happens for comical absurd reasons they're trying to kill i mean um they were working in a murder corporation that was targeting real estate executives in late 70s los angeles by a very angry vengeful diabolically craft crafty guy and yet they couldn't get the job done and it may have taken them as many i don't know many as 10 times to to achieve their goal of taking out a human being and mm -hmm. um uh, when they did, it created this panic, this ripple across a small ecosystem of families in Los Angeles where they wouldn't be anywhere close to a window. They were always looking over their shoulders. And the psychological part was almost as bad as the actual physical loss of life. Of course, nothing can compare. But I mean, th there was a lot of um, a lot of people doing extra drinking, locking their doors, asking for police protection because there was a monster out in Los Angeles that was really good at killing and then playing the victim. And, um, you know, that's the type of guy you don't want to, you know, have your know where you live. Absolutely. For sure. 
Uh, let's see. You've also written a novel. Uh, what's your novel about? And what's the strangeness around the uh, Pasadena Bridge? Okay, it's um, the Colorado Street Bridge in Pasadena brooked two big valleys in the Los Angeles area, the Progressive Age, 1913. It, it connected this, um, sort of the eastern part of the San Fernando Valley with the western part of the San Gabriel Valley. And um, this bridge was a talisman of the building automobile age. Things were changing from horse and buggies to cars to Model Ts, you know, Henry Ford assembly line. There was an enclave of rich people out in Pasadena, actually tycoons that, quote, wintered in Pasadena. And you know you're affluent when you can turn a, you know, um, a noun into a verb. Um, so this was going to be the most daring, longest bridge of its kind in the world. And all this ambition and brilliant engineering went into it. But boy, a lot of a lot of uh, clashing egos, disputes, secrets, um, death surrounded it, you know, during the construction. And I believe in this idea, you know, some inanimate objects radiate energy of their creators. And the, the Colorado Street Bridge is now a historic bridge. It's been around since, you know, over 100 years. Um, but it also became known as a suicide magnet. And within a few years of its opening, people were coming to Pasadena, you know, in the Arroyo Seco, which means, you know, um, dry gulch, dry valley. But there's a beautiful area looking at the mountains, and they considered it a gorgeous place to die. And mm -hmm. Pasadena did not, uh, my city where the bridge is, didn't handle it well. They, they uh, very proud uh, of their city and the cultural museums and uh, uh, Caltech and the Rose Parade, et cetera. Uh, they didn't want to acknowledge it. And these suicides continued and continued and continued. So it, it's got this dual personality of the Colorado Street Bridge is this, this incredible monument to uh, flying concrete and it's beautiful arches based on a lot of European and Roman and Italian designs. Um, um, but it's the other side of it is people that are hopeless, that are having a bad stretch in their life, you know, uh, um, kind of run here, uh, are, are attracted by it. You know, there's lot tons of rumors about ghosts and spirits and, and things that, you know, supernatural things there. And, I, and I'm not, and at first I kind of was skeptical, but I, I'm not so anymore. So I, anyway, I created um, a novel, historical novel around the construction of this bridge with a guy that is a Pasadena Yankee doodle dandy who thinks a city can do no wrong. And he kind of has a transformation. And, um, you know, the, the part of the story, it's supposed to be entertaining. It was a dark time in the world when I wrote it. It came out in 2019. I was trying to tell myself an amusing story of heart and, and destiny. And I do believe, you know, if we don't achieve what we're supposed to in this life, we'll, we're going to come back, maybe a lesser self. And uh, with those goals and, you know, still to be claimed. And so my book has the same couple, uh, ca a similar cast of characters in two different lives, 1913 and 1993. 1913 is when the bridge opened, despite all this turmoil and trauma. And 1993 is when they reopened it after a seismic retrofit. But all those years later, we know about the suicides. We know about the buried history. We know about things, you know, cities don't want you to know. And it is about the idea of hi history is written by the victors. So I'm mm -hmm. very interested in what is history. And, um, you know, 
that was the first fiction I ever wrote. I was delighted by how well it did. I think it did bring some chuckles and a few tears. And, um, you know, I, I love the idea of going back in history, finding some famous people and some anonymous people and having them interact. In a lot of historical novels, their characters are around these fascinating individuals, but they never meet. So in my book, my characters interact with Teddy Roosevelt, Upton Sinclair, who was a massive hero of mine, you know, that inspired me to go into journalism. What a guy. All this is true. They were all in this area. And then the um, wife of Adolphus Bush, who was really the modern day founder of Budweiser Corporation. They had these magical gardens out here in Pasadena called Bush Gardens. All those things just, it just appeared to me you know, that this is a story waiting to be plucked from a tree. Hmm. Upton Sinclair, you mentioned his name. Wow. That's yeah. quite a writer there. Um, yeah. I'm familiar with his work, though I don't know that I've actually read any of it. And I, I should. His breakthrough um, book was The Jungle. The Jungle. You know, about Chicago's yes. meatpacking industry. And it's sort of about the industrialization of food. And uh, he would come out to, and he, he was a massive celebrity. And uh, the publishing industry just all, everybody wanted a piece of him. And he eventually burned out, was in ill health, and he would come to Pasadena to recuperate, right? But he always had an eye on how the rich controlled things. And so mm -hmm. I have him get into a little argument with my main character about the soul of Pasadena. So, you know, I'm a Pasadena kid, but I think only a Pasadena kid can skewer a city. And these people were there to be written about. And so, you know, uh, I, it was a dream come true. And they say there are no California natives. Not true. <laughs> well, there. Yeah, thinking well, of an old movie. <laughs> the original ones were Native Americans, you know, and then yeah, <laughs> then the Spanish came, and then Mexico, and then of course us. And then so yeah, you. yeah. So I mean, I just like. It, it, um, I I love the Colorado Street Bridge. I've been fascinated about it since I was a teenager. I had a car accident under it. We didn't even know the name of it was the Colorado Street Bridge growing up in Pasadena. We thought it was Suicide Bridge, you know, mm. say in a very cavalier way. Yeah. But if you look at this bridge, it is hard to avert your eyes because it curves. It's the only really curved bridge of its kind or was back in the day. It looks like it was an alien put it down there. And, uh, you know, half the art galleries in Pasadena survive by selling different versions of this bridge. So do a lot of organizations. It's been, it's been exploited and over-commercialized. And I, um, you know, U2, um, the band, uh, plays Helter Skelter. And <laughs> and they say they're taking it back from, Char from, you know, Charles Manson to put it back with the Beatles where it belonged. And I agree as a massive Beatles fan. I wanted to give the past, I wanted to reclaim Suicide Bridge, that name, and, and give the bridge back to its original name like a mother, the Colorado Street Bridge, you know, and I felt, I feel a connection to that bridge. I also feel a connection to the three men that died during its construction that never get acknowledged, like they didn't, they didn't exist. And that, right. pisses, that pisses me off when I walk that bridge and I see the name of the contractor and the name of the city councilman that were there. It's kind of funny how history just brushes aside those that are most important that pissed me off yes yes it is uh well other than upton sinclair who are your favorite writers um john irving philip roth mark twain tc boyle uh jess walter those types of people yeah 
I'm also a very big fan of uh, Jillian Flynn. I think she is just astoundingly good. And um, uh, yeah, so those are my, those are kind of my favorite writers. You know, when I was a kid, I re read Rolling Stone cover to cover. And so that meant me worshiping Hunter S. Thompson. Oh, yeah. You know, I like that kind of sarcastic, you know, new journalism. And it definitely inspired me. So I, I'm an, as my, my brothers and others will tell you, I'm a natural smart ass. And I couldn't, I, I, I can't get that out of my writing if I had, you know, five people standing over me. So I believe, you know, I believe in being funny and I believe, you know, what makes us somewhat different than animals is, you know, you've never heard a dog crack a really funny joke. So, <laughs> and I, and I believe in the magic of dogs, as you'll see when I send you a copy of Arroyo. All right. Oh, well, that's very kind of you. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Um. Let's see. Uh... So I was going to say on the darkest glare, you know, I, I've I've made a lot of friends in true crime. You know, some of the true crime writing is very supermarket pulp, procedurals, you know, um, others are more narrative. Um, I have a good buddy named Ron Francel, who's a terrific true crime writer. He's also done novels. And, you know, when you read his book, it does feel more fiction. It doesn't feel like, and now on this date, the judge said this. And then on that date, the prosecuting attorney recommended it, it, it's filled with it's driven by people and i really tried to approach this book like that you know and i wanted i wanted folks to be upset or moved when uh sharp events happen to them I, you know you have to make your readers invest in your characters so that i i did work very hard on that you know and i don't try to judge and i don't try to label um, I just try to put myself in their shoes and I try to paint pictures the best I can with my words. That's what we do. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. We have five minutes left before we get cut off by Zoom. Okay. <laughs> um, what advice, quick, would you give? What's the best advice for you would give for somebody who's interested in writing for a living? Consider law school. <laughs> oh dear <laughs> no um it is very as you know it's very very hard to make a living as a writer i mean as if you're a journalist you know you work for a publication and you get a paycheck you know so that that uh you know you have that stability you know if you want to write for a living you just have to start very early you know and um journalism today is unfortunately, sort of in uh, uh, spiraling downwards. I mean, there's like a third less journalist now than there was 10 years ago or something really uh, eye-popping. Um, so you have to ask, where are you going to make your living writing? And you may need to take a job doing types of writing you don't like, whether it's technical writing or even PR or whatever, but 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 stay true to what you want to do and write on the side, write it, get up at five o'clock in the morning, you know, do it on weekends, you know, have your notepad with you or your laptop with you on the train, that type of thing. Keep at it. Don't, don't list, you know, write. And, you know, when you first write, write just for the joy of it, Put, invest in the process, not the outcome and write the book. This is the best piece of advice somebody gave, write the book you'd want to read. Don't worry about the noise. Don't worry about anything else. That is a big problem today for writers because the internet is a click away. Self insecurity is a click away. Uh, uh, self doubt is a click away. You know, stay off. I mean, I wish I could disable all my social media. I, I, I really think it's a net, a, a net negative on the world, and it's definitely a net negative on me. 
you know, because it takes me away from reading, takes me away from writing, takes me away from, you know, <clears throat> I mean, um, um, trying to sculpt something good out of a gorgeous mess. You know, that's what a first draft of a book is. So you have to be focused, but you, in the end, I, I wouldn't say do it to make a living. I'd say doing it because you can't not write, you know, exactly. we're all pathological. I can't stop writing. I hope in my next <laughs> life I'm a writer. You know, when I wrote that fiction, I felt like it, it it pulled up like a firewall in my brain. And now I have more I not fiction ideas than I could write in 500 lives, you know? And that's where I get my joy. You know, we all have our good voice in life. This and my guitar are the best <laughs> voice, you know, because I got a nasal voice. Um, so that's why, I, you know, I just love writing. I've, you know, loved it since I was a little kid. And, you know, you you just find the joy in that. And don't worry about what anybody else thinks. If you get an agent, you get a big contract, great. But you know what? It's not going to make your life better because you've signed with Simon & Schuster necessarily. If you're not happy or you're not confident or you don't have self-confidence, it doesn't matter. You know, I, exactly. I've read I've read books that are self-published that are so damn good. And I've read books from big publishers that are just like so trite. And I'm just, mm -hmm. you know, you can't make sense of the commercialism, but you just have to stay true to what's in here. Write from your heart and be committed to writing a really, a really messy, beautiful first draft. That is the beginning of your baby that you will put out to the world. You know, so, I mean, just I'm doing that now. I'm writing a follow. I'm writing two books, including a follow up to Arroyo, and I'm making a big mess. You know, I'm going to uh, but I'm going to go back after I take a break. And I'm going to go back and clean it up. And I know there's something great there. You know, and you have to know that in your heart. And I'm telling a story only I can tell. There you go. That is a wonderful note to end on. And thank you. I'm going to have to um, cut it short here because we are uh, going to get kicked off of uh, Zoom. But I did want to thank you so much, Chip, for being here. Uh, I would like to thank everyone who's listening. And please uh, encourage you to check out our Patreon page um, where we have perks for Patreon supporters. Right now, uh, today, my book is coming out. It's called uh, Fatal Connections. It's out in print and in E. Our next guest will be Barry Finley. Until then, take care and happy reading.